that. Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Luke. On Wednesday nights leading up to this um, Christmas, we've been uh, talking about the prophecies that came right around the birth of Jesus. You know, we spend a lot of time, and rightfully so, talking about the prophecies uh, that were hundreds of years before Jesus was born. We're talking about, you know, the prophecies in Genesis, the prophecies in Daniel, the prophecies in Isaiah and Micah and Joel and uh, the Psalms, you know, all of these things speaking about a Messiah to come. But, uh, you know, we don't spend a lot of time sometimes talking about the prophecies that happened right around the birth of Jesus. And, and, and those are pretty important too. Something so wonderful about the early chapters in the book of Luke or the book of John are these moments, especially in Luke, where when people come in contact with Jesus, their mouth is open to prophesy. Even the baby Jesus, even Jesus just as a baby inside his mother's womb, uh, Elizabeth felt her son jump up in her womb because she was around pregnant Mary who had Jesus inside her. You know, that, that's how much uh, the, the, even, even the baby Jesus, even that uh, Jesus in utero affected the atmosphere. And Mary, when she first heard that she was going to have a baby, she opened her mouth and, and a prophetic song, a prophetic uh, a message of thanksgiving to the Lord. We call it the Magnificat, but it starts out with my soul will magnify the Lord. Zacharias, when John the Baptist was born, opened his mouth in a wonderful prophecy about the light that was coming and the sunrise from on high that was going to visit them. And today I want to talk a little bit about a man that we've talked about throughout this month, but a man named Simeon, an old man who held the baby Jesus and realized what he was holding. It's amazing how many people were around Jesus as a baby and had no idea what they were beholding. They didn't know this was God come in the flesh. They did not know this was the Messiah they'd been waiting for. I've said it before, but it, it baffles me that, that uh, when the Magi, the wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem, the Bible says back in their homeland, they saw a star and they recognized what, the, what it was. They said, we saw his star in the east. And when they saw that, they went to Jerusalem because they knew that somehow they knew that star meant that the king of the Jews that they'd been waiting for was going to be born. So they went to Jerusalem, which is the logical place to go. Now, a lot of times we think they followed it from their home to Bethlehem, but that's not true. They saw it in the east, they went to Jerusalem, and it didn't appear again until it was time to leave. But they asked, where is the king going to be born? Where is the king of the Jews going to be born? And what's cool is, is that, that you know, the, they were able to find scribes and, 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 and students of the word of God that knew where the Messiah was going to be born. They said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's amazing, but people knew where, where he was going to be born. They said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. The Magi said, let's go. And on their way, they see that star again, and they follow it to Bethlehem, and it rests over the place. Now, we, we've talked about this before, but there's no reason that we have to believe that star was actually a, a, an astrological, like, a, a, or ast astron astronomical star, a real a star, because the Bible says that the word for star that's in, that's in the Greek text simply means a, a great, like a, a light in the heavens, a, a great light in the heavens, a divine light. And so most stars don't just travel 
and then just like point to a stable and stop there. That's not kind of a, a standard thing that a star would do, but I could easily see God uh, doing that in whatever way he wanted to do, including it could have been the same angels that the shepherds saw in the fields carrying that light, you know, whatever it was. And we can all have our theories and we can all get along and still play at Christmas time. It's fine. If you got a totally different theory than me, that's okay. As long as we know this, that they, that star led them to Bethlehem. But what's crazy is that although the scribes and the lawyers and the students of the word knew where the Messiah was going to be born, not one of them said, why do you ask? Well, we believe he's going to be born right away, or he's already been born. Can we come with you? Not one of them said, let's tag along to Bethlehem. Nobody was interested in seeing that baby. Nobody was interested in seeing what, what now was likely a toddler. Nobody was interested in seeing the Messiah except the Magi and then Herod who was interested in killing him. When Jesus was just a few days old in Luke chapter 2, not very old at all, but they had a, for the firstborn in their culture, according to the law of Moses, the firstborn would be dedicated to the Lord. Firstborn son, and, and here's what happened. They brought him to the temple. It says in Luke 2, verse 21, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when he, the parents had brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I just want to stop there for a minute because this is not a verse that makes it on to a ton of Christmas cards. But it's a powerful verse and it it's, it's sets the tone for the whole of Jesus' ministry. Sometimes we forget that for all the multitudes that follow Jesus, at the end of his life, he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving to God because he kept 11 guys. For all the hundreds that followed him, for all the thousands that, that saw miracles, he's happy that he kept 11 of them. That's a shocking thing for many of us because we, I don't think anybody's going to argue that Jesus was the best preacher on the planet, the best communicator on the planet. But being the best communicator, being the best preacher doesn't mean you make everybody agree with you. And it wasn't Jesus' goal to make everybody like him. 
And at the end of the day, it was the crowds that forced Pilate's hand in crucifying Jesus. It wasn't the Romans that wanted him dead. It was the, the, the people he came to, to preach to, the people he came to witness to, the people he came to his own who did not recognize him. Those are the ones who wanted him dead. So it's a powerful statement and maybe a little one that's a little hard to hear because I can imagine Mary and Joseph are pretty thrilled when this old man that is known around Jerusalem as being a righteous man, a devout man, I don't know if they knew who he was, but this is a man who's got respect. And he comes, and, and you, know, they're not, they're, you know, they're not walking into the temple with a sign that says, this is the baby Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of God. They're not making a big deal. I mean, they've already seen some amazing things, right? Like the shepherds came and said, we saw angels, and they said, glory to God in the highest. Uh, you know, there was some really cool things that had already happened. And they get to the temple, but they're not saying, yo, this is, this is what we've been waiting for. Folks, step right up, step right out, see the baby Messiah. Nobody's saying that. They're just bringing him to the temple. You know, it says that they bring two turtle doves, which, oh, all of a sudden it makes sense why it's in that crazy song about the... 12 days of Christmas. Oh, two turtle doves. That's why it comes from the scripture. But you may wonder why they're giving two turtle doves. Do you know in the law of Moses, the two turtle doves were to give it, be given by people who couldn't afford a better sacrifice. They couldn't afford a big animal. Two turtle doves was like the minimum. That was like the welfare offering. That wasn't as much. Now, maybe it was because they couldn't afford it. Maybe it was because they traveled from a long way and that was the, the thing that was most convenient. I don't know, but I believe it was their best. I believe it was their best. You know, we know that they didn't have any livestock kicking around. They just barely got themselves into a stable, right? They just barely had room for them to sleep overnight. They're, they're borrowing a place where animals are supposed to be sleeping. So it, it makes sense that they don't have an extra cow to throw around and, get, and sacrifice here. But they got two turtle doves. But I say all that to say this is not the couple that you're looking at saying these guys are a big deal. They walk into the temple they don't look fancy. They're, all, they're carrying the minimum sacrifice. They got a little baby, just like everybody else has a little baby who comes to dedicate them at the temple. And then Simeon, whatever he sees, he sees by the Spirit because he came to the temple full of the Spirit. And the reason he sees the Messiah is not because God just said, you're special and everybody else, I mean, I don't care about any of these people, but I just picked you. Yes, God picked him, but maybe the reason he got picked was because of what the scripture said. He was righteous, he was devout, and he was looking. He was the, one of those few that was holding on and saying, if God promised it, maybe it comes in my lifetime, but I'm going to look. Yeah. And at some point in his looking, as an old man, God says, you're not going to die until you see it. We talked about this before, so I won't spend too much time on it, but it's an amazing thing that God uses two old people to herald the birth of Jesus at the temple that day. An old man named Simeon and an old man named Anna. One of the last things that Simeon will ever see in his life is the promise he's waited for all his life. He sees it at the end. So often we're discouraged if we don't see it in the next five minutes. This man waited his whole life and saw it and was happy. Anna sees it. And I think it's not a coincidence. God used a young couple to bring in the Messiah, but he used old people to herald his birth. 
And Jesus said, up until now to the law, up until John, it's been the law and the prophets, but now there's a new era. And in this moment, God's marrying the two eras together. He's, he's bringing them together. Just like in Malachi, one of the last, the last things said in the Old Testament, the first thing that's said in the New Testament is that I'm going to reunite the hearts of the fathers and the children. And it's a wonderful moment of generations coming together. Simeon holds this baby and he blesses it. And the first thing he says are really great. I can die in peace now. I've seen salvation. It's, it's going to be a light. He's going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He's going to be the glory of your people Israel. And he stops and he says, I just want to bless you guys. Mary, Joseph, is it okay if I bless you? Yeah, bless us. I'm going to bless you. And whatever he, I, we don't get his words there. We just know he blessed them. I imagine the blessing he said to them was very similar to the blessing we see all throughout the scripture. He blesses them. And, and maybe they thought they were done. Good word, good prophecy. But he says, I'm not done. This child is appointed for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And for a sign to be opposed. Do you know what a sign to be opposed looks like? That's a target. A sign to be opposed is somebody that is not going to be super well liked. I think this is probably the first time they're getting a clue about that. As hard as it's going to be for Mary to bear a child, as hard as it's going to be for her to uh, bear the reproach of those people that say you're, you're, an unwed you're an unwed girl who's all of a sudden pregnant, she's dealt with that. But at, at this point, it's all, going to, it, it's all been this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah. I'm sure there's a part of her that, that believes the Romans aren't going to like him because he's going to overthrow him or something. But this is the first moment where she's hearing, wait, not everybody in Israel is going to like this. Not everybody's going to be on board with God's plan. Then he says this, and this is a tough one. But he says, a sword will even pierce your heart, Mary. He said, many hearts are going to be revealed. Many hearts are going to be revealed. Now, although there's some hard parts in this saying, there's some hard parts in this prophecy, it is good news. It's good news. What did he mean that this child is going to be the, the rise and fall of many in Israel? Well, we see it throughout the ministry of Jesus, didn't we? We see it. People who thought they were the godliest people, people who set them up as the closest to God, were revealed to be the ones that were furthest from God. When, I, when we hear the word exposed, revealed, most of the time we don't think that's a nice word. Right? If you hear the word exposed now, it's, 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 it's you know, kind of spilling the beans on someone. It's, if, you, if you say a celebrity's name and then put the word exposed behind it and put it online, it means you're telling all the bad things they've done. But that's not necessarily what it means here. Remember, Jesus is not just the fall of many. He's the rise and fall of many. What, what's happening is he's not knocking everybody down, guys. In fact, he's lifting up all who will receive him. The trick is they're going to find out what they really believe. You see, there's been a period in their history here, and it's happened in cycle after cycle after cycle where they 
Somebody rises up, a prophet, a leader, rises up and brings the nation back to God. And, and, and they walk in that for a while. And then that person goes away and they drift again. And they drift again. And they drift again. And in this period that Jesus steps into, the scripture, the prophecies say, was going to be one of the darkest that they've ever had. And the reason it's dark is not the Romans. That's bad, but it's not the reason it's so dark. The reason it's so dark is, is not the Greeks' fault. They played their part, but it's not that. The reason is that God's own people have drifted from God. You know, he said in the, in, in the Old Testament prophets, he said, with your lips you honor me, but your hearts are far from me. You know, when Jesus stepped onto the scene, he stepped in to a group of people who knew how to say the right thing and quote the right scriptures and do the right rituals, but whose hearts were in the wrong place. There was a point where Jesus talked to his disciples and he said, hey, you ever notice that the Pharisees, you, you notice what they're preaching? He said, you should do, you should do what they say. Because their preaching is good. Just don't do what they do. It's an amazing thought. That your theology can be right, but your heart can be wrong. And he says, in this moment, it's not going to be, it's, it's not necessarily going to be the books and the teachings that are going to be exposed. Although he's going he's to expose the traditions of men. But it's going to be the hearts that are going to be revealed. And I want to read you something that is very similar when Jesus actually was preaching and teaching. In Matthew, he said something that, that, that really is, is haunting, but it's, it's wonderful at the same time. In Matthew 21, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And, uh, you know, when Jesus was teaching in the temple, this was, this was the rough point. This was at the end. You guys know that Jesus didn't do most of his ministry in Jerusalem. He did most of his ministry in Galilee, in the surrounding area. He did most of his ministry in the country. When he was in Jerusalem, there was a couple of, there's, a, there's, there's some notable times he's in Jerusalem. And, and people don't like him when he's there. He's a wanted man when he's there. So the last time he goes to Jerusalem, remember what happens. He's not anywhere near Jerusalem, although he's already set his face to Jerusalem. And he's on his way there, but his disciples haven't quite clued in yet. And he hears that, that Lazarus is dead, or is dying. That's what the messenger said, he's dying. Lazarus is a friend of his. Lazarus is a brother to two women that have really supported his ministry. And he says, okay, our buddy Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. His disciples say, we can't go there. That's too close to Jerusalem. If we go there, because Bethany was like a couple of kilometers away from Jerusalem. If we go there, we're going to die. You're going to die, and we're going to die if we go with you. Jesus says, I'm going. And Thomas says, fine. Let's just go die with him then. All right. I guess we're going to go die. See, they knew how well liked Jesus was in Jerusalem. They knew that as much as people like him over here, they don't like him over there. And when the triumphant entry happens, the Bible tells us it's not the Jerusalem people that are excited to see Jesus. It's his disciples that go before him and start the parade. And it's the visitors who have come for the feast from other places that are excited to see him. But the Jerusalem people are saying, who is this guy? And the ones that do know who he is want him dead. 
He comes to the temple, and one of the gospels tells us he starts, he steps into the temple, and some kids who were in the parade, in the triumphant entry, some kids start saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They start saying he's the Messiah. And the Pharisees get real mad at these kids, and they say, you better shut these kids up. And Jesus says, if I shut them up, the rocks are going to start saying something. And the rocks that he's pointing at, he's not talking about random pebbles on the ground. He's standing on the temple ground. This rock is going to cry out. And that comes to be important because the rocks and the stones, he's going to talk a lot about that in a minute. He's teaching in the temple. It's dangerous to teach in the temple. The people that that take care of the temple and run the temple, they don't like you. You got the Pharisees. The Pharisees were probably the closest to what Jesus believed. Well, maybe the Essenes, but the Pharisees at least believed the word. They were wrong about a lot of stuff. They were religious nut, nut brains, but, but at least they believed that the, the Bible was true. They added a bunch to it though, right? They thought these rules are great. We should have more of these. We should have more rules. I, I, there's lots. I would feel more comfortable if there were more. So they've added some. But then you have the Sadducees. Now once you got to Jerusalem, the Pharisees were in Galilee too where Jesus was. That's why we mostly see him fighting with the Pharisees because they're where he is. The Sadducees are the fancy religious people. They're so fancy that they love hanging out with the Romans and the Greeks. They love hanging out with powerful people. And they don't really believe that the miracles in the Bible actually happened. They don't believe there's a life after this. You die, you die. These are the kind of people that say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in all that mumbo jumbo about miracles or resurrection or anything like that. Those people are still here today. Those people are still here today. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote his version of the Gospels. He said, oh, I believe Jesus was a great teacher. I'm going to rewrite the Gospels and take all the miracles out and take the resurrection out and just leave the moral teachings of Jesus in. See, he was just a Sadducee. That's what they believed. Let's just be moral. Let's, let's you know, let's keep the facade of religiosity, but let's not, let's not get weird with all that hocus pocus splitting the Red Sea garbage. When Jesus is in the temple, he's sparring with both of them. And it says that he's teaching, and they take issue with him, and they challenge his authority. The chief priests and the elders came in while he's teaching, and they say, by what authority are you doing this? Who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, this is in Matthew 21, verse 24, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from which source? From heaven or from men? Well, they, they get in their huddle. <laughs> they say, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll say, then why, don't you, why didn't you believe him when he said something nice about me? But if we say it's from men, we fear the people, for they regard John as a prophet. So they know they're trapped. And they say to Jesus, we don't know, which is something they like never said. He said to them, then I'm not going to tell you what authority I do these things. He tells them two parables. It would do you well to go back and read those parables. They're basically parables about how God has sent prophets and they keep killing the prophets he sends. And that's the one about the landowner. A landowner who sends a messenger, invites people to dinner. And every time this person comes and gives them this news, they kill the messenger. So he's talking about how they've killed every prophet that is 
foretold of his coming. And then he tells another, um, tells another parable about a guy who says, uh, you know, he, he says to his two sons, he says, uh, why don't you guys go and work in the vineyard? Why don't you go and, uh, you know, go out there and get, bring the harvest in. Work for me. One of them says, I'll do it. The other one says, I won't do it. The one who says, I won't do it, feels guilty and goes out and does it. The one who said he would, doesn't do it. He says, which of these do you think is going to get rewarded? And they go, well, the one who did it in the end. He goes, that's my point. You guys are mad that the sinners are coming to me. The sinners who said we don't need God are the ones that are now coming to me. And you who say we're all about God are rejecting me. So he says, you're like the ones that say, oh, I'll work and you never show up. Where these are the ones that said, I don't want to work. And in the end they do. He says, these are the ones I'm going to receive. Well, that got him real mad. That got him real mad. So he says this in verse 42. He said, did you never read in the scriptures? Ooh, already they're offended. We read every verse. 99 times. We've read it. We've added to it. We've expounded on it. He said, didn't you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builder rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Did you read that? Did you read that? Never think about the fact that you might be the builders. That you guys are the ones in charge of this. That you're the ones that are supposed to be building. And you rejected me, the cornerstone. He said in verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. What he says is, if anyone falls on me and trips over me, it's going to break you. But if I fall on you, it's going to crush you. How do you take that? How do you receive that? Here's how I read that. You can read that a couple of ways. None of us want to be broken into pieces. None of us want to be crushed. It sounds to me like it's better to trip over Jesus and fall onto him than it is for the kingdom of God to fall onto you. Because I was, you know, when, when you come to Jesus, you, got your, you think you got your life all together. You think things are well. Here's the thing. He says, and, and Peter quotes from the same verse that Jesus quoted from, from the same prophecy, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now he's talking, when he gets to the temple, he talks about these stones. He says, I'm gonna he says, tear down this temple, it'll be rebuilt in three days. He talks about his resurrection. He talks about this thing being torn down and rebuilt. He talks about a lot about the stones and the rocks and he's tying it all together. We don't have time to get into all of that. But here's the important thing. He says, people are gonna be offended by me. They're going to be offended. I am a rock of offense. That word offense means to trip over something, to stumble over it. It's the word, it's a, that Greek word is the word scandalos or scandalon. The word we get the word scandal from. I'm scandalous, he's saying. I'm offensive. And it's supposed to be that way. Now, it's not supposed to be offensive the way some people think it's supposed to be offensive. Some people think they're being offensive for Jesus and they're just being hateful. Do you know what I mean? Hey, let's be offensive for Jesus and let's just get in people's face and tell them how terrible they are. What, they're, what you're doing is you're making people trip over you before they ever get the chance to trip over Jesus. 
Jesus is enough. The, the gospel is enough. The gospel is good news, and even the good news will be offensive. Do you know why it's offensive? Because in order for me to believe in the wonder of a Savior, i got to believe I need a Savior. And in order for me to believe I need a Savior, I have to believe my life is not as perfect as I thought it was. See, for me to, to realize I've been saved from hell, I have to believe I've done something to deserve to go to hell. So the gospel is good news when I know why it's good news. It's good news because I needed a Savior. That's offensive, right? So when you come to Jesus and your life seems perfect, when you trip over the fact that there's a Savior, you have to come to terms with the fact that you needed a Savior. That breaks up your perfect little life. My life, which I built on my job, I built on my reputation, I built on my 50-year plan, it's all falling apart. It's not enough. I fall to pieces. And he puts me back together in a wholeness that I've never known before. See, I needed that. If somebody's driving off, uh, driving on a road full speed, but that road is going to go off a cliff, and you know it, but they don't know it, what's the most loving thing you can do? Put a barricade up, do something to stop them, right? Put something in the road. The best thing that can happen is that something would be in the road to stop them from going on that road any longer. Now that's going to mess up somebody's travel plans. Nobody wants to see a barricade in the road. (laughs) I was picking up my son from school today. And if my son is two minutes later than he normally is, it costs me like 10 minutes in the parking lot. I've timed it out. I'm sure he feels rushed when I get him and I just rush him along. It's like, Daddy, where, where, you know, Daddy, wait, I have to say goodbye. You don't have to say goodbye yet. You can phone him later, you know? And I rush him to the car because I know if I get to the car before those people get to the car, we get out of here. But there's one way into that parking lot and there's one way out. And if I have to wait for everybody else, we're going to be waiting a long that time because everybody's got to turn left. Everybody's got to turn left. So today, for some reason, his class didn't show up. When the bell rang, everybody else floods out the doors. His class is nowhere to be found. So he comes out. He's two, just two minutes. Come on, guys. We all know that two minutes is nothing to a child. It shouldn't be anything to me. But two minutes is going to cost me 10 to 15 minutes, so it means something to me. But I smile. I give him a hug. I try not to make him feel rushed as I gently push on his back. <laughs> and we get to the car. Sure enough, I'm behind all these people. The good thing is they're all turning left, but I realize there's a way I can take this. I can, I can go right. I bypass all of them. There's no, sweet feeling, no sweeter feeling than passing all these cars who are turning left when you got to go right. I get to the part where I'm about to turn, you know, and I'm feeling good about myself. And all of a sudden, that pesky little junior high student who's minding the crosswalk puts up the stop sign. I'm ready to go. And puts up the stop sign. And it just for a minute, and I, I'm admitting this to you because I know that you're Christians and you'll forgive me, but for a minute, I'm like, you pesky little, you, oh, Mr. Big Shot now, huh? You got a stop sign and suddenly you think you run the world, okay? I want to turn right and I want to turn right now, but the problem, the thing that bothered me is it seems like this person's putting up a stop sign for no reason. I don't see any kids. They're just putting up a stop sign keeping me from going about my day. 
until, I, but I stopped obeying authority. I stopped, and what I didn't see was this little tiny person walking in front of the bumpers of the other cars, and I thank God for that stop sign. So in that millisecond, I'm mad at the stop sign. I'm mad at the person that's holding up the stop sign who's just doing their job. They've probably got better things to do than stand in a crosswalk holding the sign up at me, but they're doing it. And for a minute, I'm not, I'm not mad mad, but I'm, I'm annoyed. But that annoyance gives way to great relief and thanksgiving when I see that little head bobbing in front of those bumpers. You know what I mean? You know that feeling? You know that? You know, my wife does this. She's wonderful. She is not a backseat driver. She's not a side seat driver. She's very nice about it when she sits in the passenger seat. But every now and then she'll say, hey, hey, do you see that? You know, she'll, look, stop, stop, stop. And she'll see something I don't see. And you know that moment of adrenaline where you're like, don't tell me how to drive. <laughs> she realized that she kept you from committing vehicular homicide. <laughs> right? Thank you for telling me how to drive. I didn't see that car coming out of nowhere. Thank you. That moment of adrenaline is just like, right? And you react. Sometimes you react. Now, I've learned not to react anymore. I just hold it in. (laughs) And if after 10 seconds she's wrong, I'll tell her later. She's usually right. You're usually right. And you know, when people come to Jesus and you find out you need a savior and your life is shattered when you hit it, you stumble, you trip. Listen, he, had, he has to be a rock in the middle of the road. People have to trip over Jesus. If they don't trip over Jesus, they're going to die. He's saving our lives. But a lot of times when we trip over something, we're mad at it. Peter says that there are some who will turn around and curse the stone. They're mad that they got tripped up. But it is a stone for us who are being saved. He says it's the cornerstone. We'll build our life on it. So the trick is, is when we trip over Jesus, are you going to turn around and curse the thing that tripped you? Or are you going to recognize this precious value for us who believe and build your life on it? This is is the Savior. Like I said before, one of the worst things we can do, we can do two things, both equally damaging in different ways. Number one, we can be the offensive people that just don't have enough love in our life and we just offend people because we think we have a right to be offensive. And we offend people and they get offended over us, they trip over us before they ever get a chance to meet Jesus. We haven't done them any favors. Or, We're so afraid of offending people that we move the rock out of the road. And we create a church experience. We create a a message. We create a salvation, a gospel that doesn't really put Jesus in the way. Kind of moves him so you can walk nicely around him and still feel okay. And we've done them no favors. What's the best thing we can do? Build on the cornerstone. He says he's going to be there for the rise and the fall of many. Whether he's for your fall or your resurrection is up to how you receive him. Jesus wasn't nicer to some people and meaner to others. He presented the same message. Now, he may have been rougher on some people who had hard hearts because that was the best thing for him. You know, he was real kind to the people who knew they were sinners. Because what they needed in that moment wasn't to be 
reminded how terrible they were. What they needed to know was that I'm worthy of being saved. But it's pretty rough on the people who didn't think they needed a savior. Because the most merciful thing you can do for someone who doesn't think they need a savior is to be brutally honest with them and say, you're not as good as you think you are. Which is what he did for the Pharisees. John said, and he echoed what the prophet Malachi said, every valley, or sorry, what Isaiah said, every valley will be lifted up. Every high place, every mountain will be brought low. Every crooked place will be made straight and a way will be prepared for the Lord. Jesus came and he lifted up the lowly and he said, you don't think you're worthy of a savior, but you are. Because it's not about your worthiness, it's about my worthiness. It's about my goodness. And every mountain, every proud person, because pride will always keep us from the grace of God. Every proud person who thought they didn't need a savior had to be brought low so they could so that they could receive salvation. Paul said this. He said, my, my prayers for my brothers, this is in Romans 10. My prayers for my brothers who seeking to establish their own, my prayers that they'd be saved because seeking to establish their own righteousness. They have forsaken the righteousness of God, which is by faith. Do you hear what he's saying? Because they think they're good enough on their own. They haven't received the gift of goodness from God of rightness with God. And that's the same letter where he writes, you know, the Bible told us, the scripture told us there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I think of the blessing of our heart being revealed. I think of that as a huge blessing. I love when the scripture says that the word of God is a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You know, when you're studying your Bible, your Bible is studying you. Because it's alive. It's not a textbook. It's not a history book. It's God speaking right now. See, when I, when I really let it breathe into me, when I let that life come in, my heart's going to be revealed. It says it's judging the thoughts and intentions of my heart. It's not judging to condemn. It's judging to save. I need my heart to be revealed so my heart can be healed. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I have to, I, you have, you, you can say, you know, I, I've met people that have said this. I'm not talking about Christians that are believing God for healing. I'm talking about people that don't even believe in miracles. And they'll say this, I don't want to go to the doctor because I know I probably have cancer. And if I go to the doctor, he'll tell me I have cancer. They think by not going to the doctor, they're avoiding the disease. You have cancer whether or not you go to the doctor. The doctor's just going to tell you, and maybe he's going to give you something to do about it. Right? You know, I don't know. I'm afraid I have a tumor. Well, you probably should go get that checked out. No, I don't want to, because then, then I'll have it. <laughs> it's there. It's either there or it's not. But if you know you have it, maybe you can get it removed. Right? Well, how much better is it is with the king? How much better with God? That's not a maybe you could have it moved. Maybe they can save your life. It is a definite. He's a salvation for all of us. First of all, it's a definite that you need his help. And it's a definite that he will give his help to all who call on his name. 
but you just keep avoiding the doctor. You don't want to talk to the surgeon because the surgeon might tell you you need surgery. Thank God that the surgeon is honest with you. Would you want that at a hospital? Would you, like, what if hospitals took Yelp reviews? They might. And you just give the doctor a terrible review because he told me I had a disease. How dare he? I'm a good person. That doctor had no respect. That doctor had no respect, told me I had leprosy. How dare he? It's Hansen's disease now, I know, but still. That doctor, those people in the ER, I came in for help, and they insulted me. They told me I had bacteria here. They told me I had an infection here. You know what? I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't think you have any right to tell me what's going on inside of me. Only I know what's going on inside of me. You can't tell me who I am. You can't tell me what diseases I have. How crazy would you be if you wrote that on Yelp? But that's what we say to Jesus. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. How dare you tell me that I need you? How dare you tell me I need a savior? Well, thank God he loves you enough to tell you this. Thing is, Jesus said this to the religious people at one point. He says, you know, he said, the very words I'm telling you right now are the things that are going to judge you. He said, now that you know, you can't pretend you don't know. Now you know. Now you got to make a decision. Here's the thing I believe. And this is what we got to know as Christians is that Jesus never leaves people neutral. He never leaves people neutral. You can't meet Jesus and not make a decision. Do you know what I'm saying? Now I'm not saying that every time you have a conversation with someone about Jesus, they have to say a prayer or not say a prayer, and they're going to hell or they're going to heaven in that moment. I, I believe in planting seeds. I believe that God has, has, is leading people to him, and maybe he'll tell you, you know, talk to them here, and then come back and talk to them later, or talk to them, and someone else is going to talk to them over here. I'm not saying you have to bring them to a decision, but I'm saying when people really meet Jesus, they make decisions. They can't stay neutral anymore. Now you know. Jesus said this, he said, whoever is with me, he says, you're for me or against me here. He says, anybody that's with me is gathering right now. Anybody that's not with me is scattering. They may not think they're scattering, but that's what they're doing. I couldn't stay neutral around them. So radical was he, so, so full in his love, yet, yet so uh, um, abrasive and, and, and open in his truth that you couldn't be in the presence of Jesus and not make a decision about who he was. You had to either reject his claim or you received it. But you couldn't just say, I don't know, put it on the shelf. He forced, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't put his, you know, hands on your collar and say make a decision. But just his presence, everything about him was so different than the status quo. You had to decide something. I want to be the kind of person that points the light to Jesus every time. And is not afraid to make so much of Jesus that he's big in the road. And anyone who comes to know me at some point is going to meet my Savior. Is going to trip over Jesus. And if they trip over him and they're mad that they tripped over him, that's their decision. If they trip over him and find out that he's everything they've ever needed, then that's wonderful. But I want them to, I want them to trip over Jesus when they trip over me.
when they meet me. Jesus is not just the fall of the rebellious. He's the resurrection of those that receive. He's the rise of many. So many times I read that verse and I just think about the Pharisees. Do you know what I'm saying? I think about the religious people. The fall of many. Hearts of many will be revealed. Why do we always take that negatively? He gives equal time to the positive and the negative on that. In fact, he says rise first. He's for the rise and the fall of many. Many hearts will be revealed. Well, thank God. Because now that our hearts are revealed, we can do something about it. And I know that today, my, my belief, I don't, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure everybody in this room has said, Jesus, I need you to be my rise. You raised me. I need your resurrection. I'm not enough on my own. I need you. I just want you to be at ease. I want you to be okay with the fact that you can be the most loving, and you should be, the most loving, gentle, truthful, righteous person that your friends and family know. And you can be as loving to them as anybody is, and still they're offended at you. And I want you to be free from the feeling that it's your fault. I want you to just let go of the responsibility of somehow, maybe I, if I had said it differently, they would have appreciated it. Maybe if I had presented it differently, maybe if I was a better talker or communicator, Jesus was the best. His disciples were pretty good too. And people rejected them. As long as people are making a decision about Jesus, that's a good thing. I think the worst thing is not that people are offended at Jesus. The worst thing is that people are ambivalent about him. The worst thing is that people have no opinion about Jesus. The worst thing is that they think he's just a nice guy and they can include him in the nativity scene and have no, no real emotion attached to it. That's the worst thing. You know what they say? They say that, uh, you know, I don't know who first said this, but they said it's, the worst thing in the world is not to be hated. The opposite of love is not to be hated. The opposite of love is to have People just don't think of you at all. They just don't care. Hate at least is something. So you're going to meet some family this year. You're going to meet some grocery store person that you just want to bless today and you just say, Merry Christmas. And they get a weird look on their face. Like, what in the world did you just say? You Nazi. <laughs> you know, maybe you're sitting down with your relatives and you're just loving on them. And you're not even trying to be weird. But you just said, you know, I just, we just had a great time Christmas Eve at our church. <gasps> That's the worst thing you could have said. Oh, no, don't bring that up. And I just want you to be at ease. But you know, it's okay if they trip over Jesus. Because, you know, Paul tripped over Jesus. And he got real angry at Jesus. And he took it out on his followers. But at the end of the day... Jesus got a hold of him. So I want you to have great hope. There's some people right now that are kicking against the goads. They're mad at Jesus and they're mad at you, but they may very well be the next Paul. Just hold them up, love them, pray for them. It's not your responsibility to save them. It's your responsibility to give them the good news. Let God do the rest.
Amen. Be a good example. Show the love of God. Shine your light. When someone speaks ill of you, don't respond that way. When they threaten you, don't threaten in return. Act like Jesus did. Love them. And watch what he can do. Amen. Let's stand up. Let's pray together.